Chapter Twenty of She and Alan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. She and Alan by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter Twenty. The Gate of Death. Before turning in, I examined these wounded men for myself. The truth is that I was anxious to learn their exact condition in order that I might take an estimate as to when it would be possible for us to leave this valley or crater bottom of Kor, of which I was heartily tired. Who could desire to stay in a place where he had not only been involved in a deal of hard, doubtful and very dangerous fighting? from which all personal interest was absent, but where also he was meshed in a perfect spider's web of bewilderment and exposed to continual insult into the bargain. For that is what it came to. This Asha took every opportunity to jeer at and affront me. And why? Just because I had conceived doubts, which somehow she discovered, of the amazing tales with which it had amused her to stuff me as a farmer's wife does a turkey poult with meal pellets. How could she expect me, a man, after all of some experience, to believe such lies, which, not half an hour before, in the coolest possible fashion, she had herself admitted to be lies and nothing else, told for the mere pleasure of romancing? The immortal Rezu, for instance, who had drunk of the cup of life for some such rubbish, now turned out to be nothing but a brawny savage descended from generations of chiefs, also called Rezu. Moreover, the immemorial Asha, who also had drunk of cups of life, and, according to her first story, had lived in this place for thousands of years, had come here with a mother, who filled the same mystic role before her, for the benefit of an extremely gloomy and disagreeable tribe of Semitic savages. Yet she was cross with me, because I had not swallowed her crude and indigestible mixture of fable and philosophy without a moment's question. At least I supposed that this was the reason, though another possible explanation did come into my mind. I had refused to be duly overcome by her charms, not because I was unimpressed, for who could be, having looked upon that blinding beauty even for a moment, but rather because, after sundry experiences, I had at last attained to some power of judgment and learnt what it is best to leave alone. Perhaps this had annoyed her, especially as no white man seemed to have come her way for a long while, and the fabulous Callicrates had not put in his promised appearance. Also, it was unfortunate that in one way or another, how did she do it, I wondered, she had interpreted Umslopoga's question to me about marrying her, and my compromising reply. Not that for one moment, as I saw very clearly, did she wish to marry me, but that fact, intuition suggested to my mind, did not the least prevent her from being angry, because I shared her views upon this important subject. Oh, the whole thing was a bore, 
and the sooner I saw the last of that veiled lady and the interesting but wearisome ruins in which she dwelt, the better I should be pleased. Although apparently I must trek homewards with a poor young woman who was out of her mind, leaving the bones of her unfortunate father behind me. I admitted to myself, however, that there were consolations in the fact that Providence had thus decreed. For Robertson, since he gave up drink, had not been a cheerful companion, and two mad people would really have been more than I could manage. To return, for these reasons I examined the two wounded Zulus with considerable anxiety, only to discover another instance of the chicanery, which it amused this Asha to play off upon me. For what did I find? That they were practically well. Their hurts, which had never been serious, had healed wonderfully in that pure air, as those of savages have a way of doing, and they told me themselves that they felt quite strong again. Yet, with colossal impudence, Asha had managed to suggest to my mind that she was going to work some remarkable cure upon them, who were already cured. Well, it was of a piece with the rest of her conduct, and there was nothing to do except go to bed, which I did with much gratitude that my resting place that night was not of another sort. The last thing I remember was wondering how on earth Asha appeared and disappeared in the course of that battle a problem as to which I could find no solution, though, as in the case of the others, I was sure that one would occur to me in course of time. I slept like a top, so soundly indeed, that I think there was some kind of soporific in the pick-me-up which looked like sherry, especially as the others who had drunk of it also passed an excellent night. About ten o'clock on the following morning I awoke, feeling particularly well and quite as though I had been enjoying a week at the seaside instead of my recent adventures, which included an abominable battle and some agonizing moments during which I thought that my number was up upon the board of destiny. I spent the most of that day longing about, eating, talking over the details of the battle with Umslopogas and the Zulus, and smoking more than usual. I forgot to say that these Amahagas grew some capital tobacco of which I had obtained a supply, although, like most Africans, they only used it in the shape of snuff. The truth was that after all my marvellings and acute anxieties, also mental and physical exertions, I felt like the housemaid who caused to be cut upon her tombstone that she had gone to a better land where her ambition was to do nothing for ever and ever. I just wanted to be completely idle and vacuous-minded for at least a month. But as I knew that all I could expect in that line was a single bank holiday, like a city clerk on the spree, of it I determined to make the most. The result was that before the evening I felt very bored indeed. I had gone to look at Inis, who was still fast asleep, as Asha said would be the case, but whose features seemed to have plumped up considerably. The reason of this I gathered from her Amahagger nurses, 
was that at certain intervals she had awakened sufficiently to swallow considerable quantities of milk or rather cream which i hoped would not make her ill i had chatted with the wounded zulus who were now walking about more bored even than i was myself and heaping maledictions on their ancestral spirits because they had not been well enough to take part in the battle against Riesu. I even took a little stroll to look for Hans, who had vanished in his mysterious fashion, but the afternoon was so hot and oppressive with coming thunder that soon I came back again and fell into a variety of reflections that I need not detail. While I was thus engaged and meditating, not without uneasiness, upon the ordeal that lay before me after sunset, for I felt sure that it would be an ordeal. Hans appeared and said that the Amahager, Impi, or army was gathered on that spot where I had been elected to the proud position of their general. He added that he believed, how he got this information I do not know, that the white lady was going to hold a review of them and give them the rewards that they had earned in the battle. Hearing this, Umslopogas and the other Zulus said that they would like to see this review if I would accompany them. Although I did not want to go, nor indeed desired ever to look at another Amahagger, I consented to save the trouble of argument, on condition that we should do so from a distance. So, including the wounded men, we strolled off and presently came to the crumbled wall of the old city, beyond which lay the great moat, now dry, that once had encircled it with water. Here, on the top of this wall, we sat down where we could see without being seen, and observed the Amahagger companies, considerably reduced during the battle, being marshalled by their captains beneath us and about a couple of hundred yards away. Also we observed several groups of men under guard. These we took to be prisoners captured in the fight with Rezu, who, as Hans remarked with a smack of his lips, were probably awaiting sacrifice. I said I hoped not, and yawned, for really the afternoon was intensely hot, and the weather most peculiar. The sun had vanished behind clouds, and vapours filled the still air, so dense that at times it grew almost dark. Also, when these cleared for brief intervals, the landscape in the grey, unholy light looked distorted and unnatural, as it does during an eclipse of the sun. Goroko, the witch-doctor, stared round him, sniffed the air, and then remarked jocularly that it was wizard's weather, and that there were many spirits about. Upon my word, I felt inclined to agree with him, for my feelings were very uncomfortable. But I only replied that if so, I should be obliged if he, as a professional, would be good enough to keep them off me. Of course, I knew that electrical charges were about, which accounted for my sensations, and wished that I had never left the camp. It was during one of these periods of dense gloom that Asha must have arrived upon the review ground. At least, when it lifted, there she was in her white garments, surrounded by women and guards, engaged apparently in making an oration, for although I could not hear a word, 
I could see by the motions of her arms that she was speaking. Had she been the central figure in some stage scene, no limelights could have set her off to better advantage than did those of the heaven above her. Suddenly, through the blanket of cloud, flowing from a hole that looked like an eye, came a blood-red ray which fell full upon her, so that she alone was fiercely visible, whilst all around was gloom, in which shapes moved dimly. Certainly she looked strange and even terrifying in that red ray which stained her robe, till I, who had but just come out of the battle with its confused noise, began to think of the garments rolled in blood, of which I often read in my favourite Old Testament. For crimson was she, from head to foot, a tall shape of terror and of wrath. The eye in heaven shut, and the ray went out. Then came one of the spaces of grey light, and in it I saw men being brought up, apparently from the groups of prisoners under guard, and, to the number of a dozen or more, stood in a line before Asham. Then I saw nothing more for a long while, because blackness seemed to flow in from every quarter of the heavens and to block out the scene beneath. At least after a pause of perhaps five minutes, during which the stillness was intense, the storm broke. It was a very curious storm. In all my experience of African tempests, I cannot recall one which it resembled. It began with the usual cold and wailing wind. This died away, and suddenly the whole arch of heaven was alive with little lightnings that seemed to strike horizontally, not downwards to the earth weaving a web of fire upon the surface of the sky. By the illumination of these lightnings, which, but for the swiftness of their flashing and greater intensity, somewhat resembled a dense shower of shooting stars, I perceived that Asha was addressing the men that had been brought before her, who stood dejectedly in a long line with their heads bent, quite unattended, since their guards had fallen back. If I were going to receive a reward of cattle or wives, I should look happier than those moon-worshippers, Baas, remarked Hans reflectively. Perhaps it would depend, I answered, upon what the cattle and wives were like. If the cattle had red water and would bring disease into your herd, or wild bulls that would gore you, and the wives were skinny old widows with evil tongues, then I think you would look as do those men, Hans. I don't quite know what made me speak thus, but I believe it was some sense of pending death or disaster, suggested, probably, by the ominous character of the setting provided by nature to the curious drama of which we were witnesses. I never thought of that, Baas, commented Hans. But it is true that all gifts are not good, especially witches' gifts. As he spoke, the little net-like lightnings died away, leaving behind them a gross darkness, through which, far above us, the wind wailed again. Then suddenly all the heaven was turned into one blaze of light, and by it I saw Asha standing tall and rigid, with her hand pointed towards the line of men in front of her.
The blaze went out, to be followed by blackness, and to return almost instantly in a yet fiercer blaze, which seemed to fall earthwards in a torrent of fire, that concentrated itself in a kind of flame-spout upon the spot where Asha stood. Through that flame, or rather in the heart of it, I saw Asha and the file of men in front of her, as the great king saw the prophets in the midst of the furnace that had been heated sevenfold. Only these men did not walk about in the fire. No, they fell backwards, while Asha alone remained upon her feet with outstretched hand. Next came more blackness, and crash upon crash of such thunder that the earth shook as it reverberated from the mountain cliffs. Never in my life did I hear such fearful thunder. It frightened the Zulus so much that they fell upon their faces, except Goroko and Umslopogas, whose pride kept them upon their feet, the former because he had a reputation to preserve as heaven-heard, or master of tempests. I confess that I should have liked to follow their example and lie down, being dreadfully afraid lest the lightning should strike me, but there I did not. At last the thunder died away, and in the most mysterious fashion that violent tempest came to a sudden end, as does a storm upon the stage. No rain fell, which in itself was surprising enough and most unusual, but in place of it a garment of the completest calm descended upon the earth. By degrees, too, the darkness passed, and the westering sun reappeared. Its rays fell upon the place where the Amahagger companies had stood, but now not one of them was to be seen. They were all gone, and Asha with them. So completely had they vanished away that I should have thought that we suffered from illusions, were it not for the line of dead men which lay there looking very small and lonesome on the veld, mere dots indeed at the distance. We stared at each other and at them, and then Goroko said that he would like to inspect the bodies to learn whether lightning killed at Kor as it did elsewhere, also whether it had smitten them altogether or leapt from man to man. This as a professional heaven heard he declared he could tell from the marks upon these unfortunates. As I was curious also and wanted to make a few observations, I consented. So, with the exception of the wounded men, who I thought should avoid the exertion, we scrambled down the debris of the tumbled wall and across the open space beyond, reaching the scene of the tragedy without meeting or seeing anyone. There lay the dead, eleven of them, in an exact line as they had stood. They were all upon their backs, with widely opened eyes, and an expression of great fear frozen upon their faces. Some of these I recognized, as did Umslopogas and Hans. They were soldiers or captains who had marched under me to attack Rezo, although until this moment I had not seen any of them after we began to descend the ridge where the battle took place. Pass, said Hans. I believe that these were the traitors who slipped away and told Rezo of our plans so that he attacked us on the ridge instead of our attacking him on the plain as we had arranged so nicely. 
At least they were none of them in the battle, and afterwards I heard the Amahagger talking of some of them. I remarked that if so, the lightning had discriminated very well in this instance. Meanwhile, Goroko was examining the bodies one by one, and presently called out, These doomed ones died not by lightning, but by witchcraft. There is not a burn upon one of them, nor are their garments scorched. I went to look and found that it was perfectly true. To all outward appearance, the eleven were quite unmarked and unharmed. Except for their frightened air, they might have died a natural death in their sleep. Does lightning always scorch? I asked Goroko. Always, Makamazan, he answered. That is, if he who has been struck is killed as these are, and not only stunned. Moreover, most of yonder dead were knives, which should have melted or shattered with the sheaths burnt off them. Yet those knives are as though they had just left the smith's hammer and the weth stone. And he drew some of them to show me. Again it was quite true, and here I may remark that my experience tallied with that of Goroko, since I have never seen anyone killed by lightning on whom or on whose clothing there was not some trace of its passage. Oh, said Umslopogas, this is witchcraft, not heaven wrath. The place is enchanted. Let us get away, lest we be smitten also who have not earned doom like those traitors. No need to fear, said Hans, since with us is the great medicine of Sikali, which can tie up the lightning as an old woman does a bundle of sticks. Still I observed that for all his confidence, Hans himself was the first to depart, and with considerable speed. So we went back to our camp without more conversation, since the Zulus were scared, and I confess that myself I could not understand the matter, though no doubt it admitted of some quite simple explanation. However that might be, this core was a queer place with its legends, its sullen Amahagger and its mysterious queen, to whom at times, in spite of my inner conviction to the contrary, I was still inclined to attribute powers beyond those that are common even among very beautiful and able women. This reflection reminded me that she had promised us a further exhibition of those powers, and within an hour or two. Remembering this, I began to regret that I had ever asked for any such manifestations, for who knew what these might or might not involve? So much did I regret it, that I determined, unless Asha sent for us, as she had said she would do, I would conveniently forget the appointment. Luckily, Umslopoga seemed to be of the same way of thinking. At any rate, he went off to eat his evening meal without alluding to it at all. So I made up my mind that I would not bring the matter to his notice. And having ascertained that Enes was still asleep, I followed his example and dined myself, though without any particular appetite. As I finished, the sun was setting in a perfectly clear sky. 
so as there was no sign of any messenger, I thought that I would go to bed early, leaving orders that I was not to be disturbed. But on this point my luck was lacking. For just as I had taken off my coat, Hans arrived and said that old Bilali was without and had come to take me somewhere. Well, there was nothing to do but to put it on again. Before I had finished this operation, Bilali himself arrived with undignified and unusual haste. I asked him what was the matter, and he answered inconsequently that the black one, the slayer of Rezu, was at the door with his axe. That generally accompanies him, I replied. Then, remembering the cause of Bilali's alarm, I explained to him that he must not take too much notice of a few hasty words spoken by an essentially gentle-natured person whose nerve had given way beneath provocation and bodily effort. The old fellow bowed in assent and stroked his beard, but I noticed that while Umslopogas was near, he clung to me like a shadow. Perhaps he thought that nervous attacks might be recurrent like those of fever. Outside the house I found Umslopogas leaning on his axe and looking at the sky in which the last red rays of evening lingered. The sun has set, Magmasan, he said and it is time to visit this white queen as she bade us, and to learn whether she can indeed lead us down below where the dead are said to dwell. So he had not forgotten, which was disconcerting. To cover up my own doubts, I asked him with affected confidence and cheerfulness whether he was not afraid to risk this journey down below, that is, to the realm of death. Why should I fear to tread a road that awaits the feet of all of us, and at the gate of which we knock day by day, especially if we chance to live by war, as do you and I, Makumasan? He inquired with a quiet dignity, which made me feel ashamed. Why, indeed, I answered, adding to myself, though I should much prefer any other highway. After this we started without more words, I keeping up my spirits by reflecting that the whole business was nonsense, and that there could be nothing to dread. All too soon we passed the ruined archway, and were admitted into Asha's presence in the usual fashion. As Bilali, who remained outside of them, drew the curtains behind us, I observed to my astonishment that Hans had sneaked in after me and squatted down quite close to them, apparently in the hope of being overlooked. It seemed, as I gathered later, that somehow or other he had guessed or become aware of the object of our visit, and that his burning curiosity had overcome his terror of the white witch or possibly he hoped to discover whether or not she were so ugly as he supposed her veil-hidden face to be. At any rate there he was, and if Asha noticed him, as I think she did, for I saw by the motion of her head that she was looking in his direction, she made no remark. 
For a while she sat still in her chair, contemplating us both. Then she said, How comes it that you are late? Those that seek their lost loves should run with eager feet, but yours have tarried. I muttered some excuse to which she did not trouble to listen, for she went on. I think, Alan, that your sandals, which should be winged like those of the Roman Mercury, are weighted with a grey lead of fear. Well, it is not strange, since you have come to travel through the gates of death that are feared by all, even by Asha's self. For who knows what he may find beyond them? Ask the axe-bearer if he also is afraid. I obeyed, rendering all that she had said into the Sulu idiom as best I could. Say to the queen, answered Umslopogas, when he understood, that I fear nothing except women's tongues. I am ready to pass the gates of death, and if need be to come back no more. With the white people I know it is otherwise, because of some dark teachings to which they listen, that tell of terrors to be, such as we who are black do not dread. Still, we believe that there are ghosts and that the spirits of our fathers live on, and, as it chances, I would learn whether this is so, who above all things desire to meet a certain ghost, for which reason I journeyed to this far land. Say these things to the White Queen, Makumasan, and tell her that if she should send me to a place whence there is no return, I, who do not love the world, shall not blame her overmuch, though it is true that I should have chosen to die in war. Now I have spoken. When I had passed on all this speech to Asha, her comment on it was, This black captain has a spirit as brave as his body. But how is it with your spirit, Alan? Are you also prepared to risk so much? Learn that I can promise you nothing, save that when I lose the bonds of your mortality and send out your soul to wander in the depth of death, as I believe that I can do, though even of this I am not certain, you must pass through a gate of terrors that may be closed behind you by a stronger arm than mine. Moreover, what you will find beyond it I do not know, since, be sure of this, each of us has his own heaven or his own hell or both, that soon or late he is doomed to travel. Now will you go forward or go back? Make choice while there is still time. At all this ominous talk I felt my heart shrivel like a fire-withered leaf, if I may use that figure, and my blood assume the temperature and consistency of ice-cream. 
Earnestly did I curse myself for having allowed my curiosity about matters which we are not meant to understand to bring me to the edge of such a choice. Swiftly I determined to temporize, which I did by asking Asha whether she would accompany me upon this eerie expedition. She laughed a little as she answered, Bethink you, Alan, am I, whose face you have seen, a meet companion for a man who desires to visit the loves that once were his? What would they say or think? if they should see you hand in hand with such a one? I don't know and don't care, I replied desperately. But this is the kind of journey on which one requires a guide who knows the road. Cannot Umslopogas go first and come back to tell me how it has fared with him? If the brave and instructed white lord panoplied in the world's last faith, is not ashamed to throw the savage in his ignorance out like a feather to test the winds of hell and watch the while to learn whether these blow him back unscorched or waft him into fires whence there is no return perchance it might so be ordered alan ask him yourself alan if he is willing to run this errand for your sake or perhaps the little yellow man. And she paused. At this point, Hans, who having a smattering of Arabic, understood something of our talk, could contain himself no longer. No, Baas, he broke in from his corner by the curtain. Not me. I don't care for hunting spokes, Baas, which leave no spoor that you can follow and are always behind when you think they are in front. Also, there are too many of them waiting for me down there, and how can I stand up to them until I am a spoke myself, and know their ways of fighting? Also, if you should die when your spirit is away, I want to be left that I may bury you nicely. Be silent, I said in my sternest manner. Then, unable to bear more of Asha's mockery, for I felt that as usual she was mocking me, I added with all the dignity that I could command. I am ready to make this journey through the gate of death, Asha, if indeed you can show me the road. For one purpose and no other I came to Kor, namely to learn, if so I might, whether those who have died upon the world live on elsewhere, now, what must I do? End of chapter 20 of She and Alan by H. Ryder Haggard Read by Lars Rolander